I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Jesus is uh, speaking of some things relative to his purpose here on the earth. And I want you to notice that um, he said in chapter 10, verse 10, he's um, speaking of himself, contrasting himself and the works of God versus the works of the devil. He said, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I want you to notice what Jesus said his purpose for coming to the earth was. His purpose for coming to the earth was to bring abundant life. What does that mean? What does he mean by abundant life? We know that Jesus came to bring eternal life. John chapter 3 verse 36 said, He that believeth hath eternal life. It doesn't say he that believes will, will have someday eternal life. It says he that believeth hath eternal life. Believing is talking about believing on Jesus and having the fact that he went to the cross and was raised from the dead. It said, he that believeth hath eternal life. Well, do you think that eternal life is the abundant life he's talking about? Would make sense, wouldn't it? And he describes this life. Now, there are several words. There are four different words that are used throughout the New Testament uh, to refer to life. And if Jesus is, uh, is talking about a special kind of life, the life of God, for example, how would he describe it? How would he describe the life of God to people that don't know anything about it? How would he describe the life of God to us? I mean, we're supposed to know something about it because we've entered into it. But how do you describe that? What words would he use? What descriptions would he give? How would he describe life in the context of the life of God or what we understand to be eternal life? And I'm going to use those terms interchangeably throughout the service tonight. How would he describe that? He says, more abundant. He talks about a quality of life, an abundance of life that goes beyond the natural understanding. How else would you describe the life of God? Now, uh, we're right here in John. Turn back with me to, uh, there's a couple other scriptures I want you to see in John. Look back to John chapter 1. John is writing to tell us about Jesus and the gospel of John identifies Jesus as the son of God, much more so than any of the other gospels. And so he starts off and he tells us about Jesus' origin. Not his beginning, but his origin. It says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, what does the beginning mean? The Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 goes on to say, and the earth was, literally became, without form and void. Isaiah 45 says that God didn't create the earth uh, in vain. King James says in vain. That's literally the, the same phrase, same Hebrew phrase, uh, without form and void. So it says in Genesis 1-2 that the earth was without form and void, but Isaiah 45 says God didn't make it without form and void. So if we take those two scriptures together, we see that God created, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and something happened to cause it to become without form and void. Now we can speculate and we can talk about what that might be. It seems to me pretty obvious that where the Bible talks about Satan being cast out of heaven into the earth, that must have had something to do with it. Nevertheless, in Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the beginning of what? It tells us about the things that God created. It tells us how he created the earth in the six days. And then it says, in this, it says this in Genesis, it says these are the generations of the earth. Generations? What does that mean? 
where it says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, it means in the beginning of the earth. It's not the beginning of God. God was here long before the earth was ever created. But he uses beginning as a starting point for what we can relate to, which is the earth, the physical realm. So it says in the beginning God created the heaven and earth. Now notice what it says about Jesus. It says in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. Now, are these two beginnings the same beginnings? Well, we could certainly say in the beginning of the creation of the earth was the word. That goes without question. That can be uh, determined or deduced by the things that John is going to say in the next few verses. But the word was way before the beginning of the earth. If God is without beginning and without end, then in, in the beginning, if we take that to mean before the creation of the earth, then it's telling us the word has always been present. And folks, this is what it's telling us about the life of God. Please keep this in context. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The life he's talking about is the life that he had in himself. What is that? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Notice unity with the Father. Notice the life of God, which is identified as the word of God, is completely united, completely one with the Father and has been for all eternity. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him, talking about Jesus being the word. Verse 14 says, the word was made flesh and dwell among us. We know that's talking about Jesus. It says, and all things were made by him. We look back at the Genesis account of creation. Everything was made by Jesus. It was a joint effort in the sense that it was uh, Jesus that carried out the plan and the purpose of God. It was the Holy Ghost that supplied the power. He was the one that brooded or moved upon the face of the deep, the face of the waters. But it was Jesus that was the creator. It, uh, it helped me to understand that Jesus had a lot greater stake in the earth than what we might give him credit for. For Jesus to empty himself of his heavenly power and glory and come to the earth as a man. Why would he do that? Just because God wanted him to? He had a much greater stake in the earth from the beginning of the earth than we ever give him credit for. He's the creator of this place. He's the one that fulfilled the plan of God. Genesis 3 verse 26 says, Let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Us refers to the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. They're all working together in this, yet Jesus is the hands-on partner. He's the one carrying out the work. The Father plans it. The Spirit of God reveals it. And Jesus carried it out so it says the same was in the beginning with God and all things were made by him everything that we see was made by Jesus and without him meaning apart from him was not anything made that was made in other words you can't find one physical thing you can't find one thing about the universe that Jesus did not make not one thing When Jesus talks about when he was here on the earth doing his father's works, that has a lot more to do with ju than just healing the sick or preaching sermons. He's always been doing his father's works. 
in the creation of the earth, in the creation of the universe. He's been doing God's work. That's his job is to do the father's work. Remember at 12 years of age when he was left behind in Jerusalem, his parents three days later found him at the temple and they were all upset. And he said, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? In other words, he's saying the whole reason I'm here is to do my father's work. Why are you surprised? Why did you not know where to find me? All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now notice verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Four different words that are used in the New Testament for the word life. One word is used consistently. Every time Jesus talks about the life of God or the life in him or the life that he brought to mankind, he always uses one specific word, and that's the word zoe, Z-O-E. I guess I'm saying it right. Now, the Greek word zoe was around long before Jesus started using it. And you can find it used in uh, Greek writings and historical records and things like that. And it doesn't refer to the life of God. So some people take exception to the fact that we say zoe is used in Scripture to mean the life of God. But again, if Jesus is going to tell them about life, what words is he going to use? If he makes up a new word, he's going to have to tell them what that word means. So he uses a word that they understand, a, u- a word that's used in common practice, and he expounds on it. I'm come that you might have zoe. You know what the word zoe means. You're used to that in your language, but abundant zoe. I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now notice in John chapter 5. Jesus says something else about this life. We know that the Bible says that Jesus emptied himself. Philippians tells us that Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man. What kind of man? How did Jesus come to the earth? He could have come any way that that God wanted him to. He doesn't have anything to do with it. He empties himself. In, In other words, he lays aside his heavenly power and glory. He lays aside the glory that he had with the Father from the beginning when he was with God and was one with God. He laid all that aside. He laid aside whatever power he had to create the universe. That's not the way he came to the earth. The Bible says very specifically that he laid that aside. So he came to the earth as a man, but what kind of man? Well, the Bible tells us, Jesus told us himself in John chapter 5 and verse 26. He said, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. In other words, when Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory, he put himself at the disposal of God to fulfill God's plan and purpose for redemption. That was God's plan, God the Father's plan. That wasn't Jesus' plan. Jesus is the carrier out of the plan. He's the executor, the one that executes the plan of redemption. So he puts himself in God's hands. God causes the Holy Spirit to overshadow Mary to be born of a virgin so that Jesus could be born of a virgin and Jesus is born. And there is a spirit inside Jesus, the baby, just like there is a spirit inside of every baby that's born. But what is that spirit? Is it the same spirit as every other baby that's born? Apparently not. It's this abundant life. For as the father hath life in himself, so also has he given to the son to have life in himself. And notice the next verse. Notice verse 27. Notice what that life is associated with and has given him authority. I wonder if authority has something to do with abundant life. 
Now here it says of Jesus, and he's given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the son of man. That has to do with God's plan of redemption. But notice the authority. The first thing that he mentions with Jesus having the same quality of life, the same quality of abundant life that he came to bring mankind. The first thing that's mentioned is authority. Now, the Bible says, turn with me over to first, uh, for, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus was born into the earth as Adam was created. Adam was created from the dust of the earth, the Bible says, and God breathed into him, and Adam became a living soul, the Bible says, this, uh, King James says. Living soul means a living being. Well, what was it that caused Adam to be alive? God created a body for him, but that body's dead until God breathes in him. Now, again, Jesus is the creator. He's the one that's executing God's plan, so it's Jesus that breathes into Adam. He breathes into him the breath of life, and Adam has the same nature, the same quality of life that Jesus had in himself when he created the heavens and the earth. So Adam was created alive unto God. He was created with this abundant life, this Zoe life. But he lost it. Jesus was created into the earth, born as a baby, not formed as a man as Adam, but exactly in the same spiritual form as Adam was created. Only person on the earth other than Adam that's ever been, well, Eve, including Eve, Adam and Eve together, that ever had the life of God in them from a child. Only one. Now, what did Jesus come to bring us? He came to bring us that same quality of life, that same abundant life. And notice what that abundant life does when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, that means makes Jesus the Lord of their lives, accepts Jesus' sacrifice as their own, accepts salvation for their own. There's any number of ways we could say, if any man is born again, any number of ways we could say this, but we all understand what he's talking about, right? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, notice what happens. He is a new creature. One translation, my favorite translation on this is, he is a new species of being. He is a new species of being. Notice what it says, what makes him this new species of being. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. Now, folks, just as Jesus was the first person that was ever born with the life of God in him since Adam was created, since the fall of man, when Adam and Eve lost that spiritual position, that spiritual life, Jesus was the first person that was born into the earth with the life of God. Man is in a totally different category. Redeemed man is in a totally different category because nobody had ever gone from death to life. Even Jesus, who the Bible says was the first begotten from the dead. Now, you know as well as I do that that does not mean physical death. Jesus was not the first person that was raised from death, from physical death, was he? Lazarus was raised from physical death. There are a number of other people that were raised from physical death. So when the Bible says Jesus was the first begotten from the dead, it can't be talking about physical death. And what's it talking about? 
It's talking about spiritual death. Jesus was the first person that was raised from death, spiritual death, to spiritual life. Well, isn't that the same thing as man, redeemed man? Isn't that the same thing that happened with you and me? No, it's not. Because Jesus, though he was made to be sin, never experienced sin. You and I did. So the new species of being that we are made, that redeemed man is made, is someone who came from death to life after having experienced, personally experienced, death by choice. That's what makes us a new species of being. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, a new species of being. Old things passed away. What old things? Spiritual things. You know, as well as I do, physical things don't change when you get saved. But spiritual things do. Spiritual things do. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What all things? Spiritual things. Behold, all things spiritually are made new. Now, what does that mean to us? Here's that abundant life. In other words, where it says all things have been made new, it means that life that you've now been endowed with, that life that's now come into you, is in abundance. What does that mean? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Look at Romans chapter 8. How many of you know that the Bible says in, Je in Galatians 3 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law? Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Now why did he do that? Well, that's Galatians 3.13. Verse 14 says, so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through faith. Now what's the blessing of Abraham? Well, if you go back and you look, the blessing of Abraham is literally freedom from spiritual death, freedom from sickness, and freedom from poverty. But how does that occur? I mean, anybody not want those blessings? I'm glad we don't get a choice because surely there's somebody that's stupid enough to say, well, I don't know about all this stuff. But it's part of the package, right? But how? How are we redeemed from spiritual death? Well, that's easy. That part's easy. We say, well, we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and that redeems us from spiritual death or sin. Most people call it sin. It's not. It's spiritual death. But what about sickness, and what about poverty? How do we get those blessings? How do we end the, the, uh, the, the bondage of sickness and poverty? Well, most people, if you give them an opportunity, they'll start talking about faith. Well, see, it's through the operation of faith. You've got to believe in your heart and say with your mouth, and, and that's true. I wouldn't argue with that description, but they miss a step. Did you find Romans 8 yet? Notice verse 2. Romans 8, verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, this word life is the word zoe. This is that abundant life that Jesus came to bring us. This is that quality of life that makes you a new species of being. And notice there's a spiritual law attached to that life. 
I want that to sink in. There is a spiritual law. Not a suggestion, but a spiritual law that's attached to the life of God. The same life that Jesus had in himself, the same life that he came to bring you and me. There's a spiritual law attached to that life. And what does that spiritual law do? It makes you free from the law of sin and death. Now, do you know what the law of sin and death is? It's the same thing as the curse of the law. The law of sin and death is talking about the results of Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. Sin, sickness, and poverty. So it says the life of God, which has a law attached to it, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature, a new species of being. Old things have passed away, spiritual things have passed away, and all things have become new. There's a spiritual law attached to that life. That spiritual law is what sets you free from the law of sin and death or from the curse of the law. Those are interchangeable terms. The law of sin and death and the curse of the law are both one and the same. So it's the life of God that sets you free. It's the life of God that makes you free from sin, sickness, and poverty. Oh, Pastor Mike, that sounds so good. But I've been saved for 30 years. And I'm still bound by sickness and poverty. I believe that Jesus has made me righteous. I believe that I'm free from sin, even though I fall into it from time to time. But how can it be a spiritual law if sickness and poverty still have bound me or still hold me in bondage? How can that be a law? Good question, huh? The answer is very simple. Because we're not living the Jesus life. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writing to the church about these things being redeemed from the spirit of, uh, from uh, the curse of the law, what belongs to us in Christ Jesus and so forth. Notice what Paul said. Um, well, let's see. Let's just start in verse 19. Paul said, Galatians 2, 19, for if I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live, uh, let me read that again. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. Now, how is that possible? I want to be dead to the law, too. I want to be dead to, to the curse of the law. I want to be dead to the law of sin and death. I want to be dead to those things. In other words, I don't want to be bound by the law of sin and death. So how does that happen? How does that occur? Notice it says in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Paul is saying this. There's only one way to be dead to the curse of the law. There's only one way to be dead to the spirit, the law of, the, uh, the, uh, the law of sin and death. There's only one way to be free from that, and that is to live the Jesus life. Can I give you an example of that? Turn with me over to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. You know what Mark chapter 5 is. It's the story of the woman with the issue of blood. Now what does that have to do with the life of God? Everything. 
absolutely everything. Notice it says in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse, uh, where do we want to start? Well, let's just start in the beginning, verse 25. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. Let me, let me stop here long enough to make this statement. Smith Wigglesworth said, uh, he used to, when he used to preach this, uh, this text, use this text for a sermon, he used to say this. He said, my trade, I was trained as a plumber, and I never got paid until all my plumbing work was done. He said, if doctors got paid after, uh, only after they cured the patient, he said, there'd be a lot less people dying. And you could well understand doctors would work a lot harder if they didn't get paid till after it was all done. Now, I'm not saying that that's true or false or whatever, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because here this woman has been stripped of everything that she has, spent on doctors trying to get better, and now she's not only just as bad as she was before, she's worse off physically, plus now she's broke. When she heard of Jesus, verse 27, when she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue, or literally power, had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee. Now get that picture, the multitude thronging thee. And sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, verse 34, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now let's stop and take this apart a little bit. The woman hears of Jesus. What does she hear about him? Well, she must hear that he's healing the sick. Because what she hears produces faith to be healed. Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. If she's hearing that Jesus is baptizing in water, that's not going to give her faith to be healed. So she had to hear something about his healing ministry, right? Had to. Now, what about his healing ministry? We don't know. It could have been something as specific as her having heard that people that touch him receive their healing. That's what she had faith for. So it could be something that specific or it could be something a little bit more general, a little bit more, uh, a little bit broader, just that Jesus is healing the sick. I don't know. I'm inclined to think that she has heard that people are, are touching him and receiving their healing because that's what she works toward. But we don't know for sure. So what happens? She finds out where Jesus is going to be. And when she finds out where Jesus is going to be, she determines that if I can just touch him, if I can just lay my hands on his, his garment, the edge of his garment, I don't even have to touch him. doesn't have to be skin on skin. He doesn't have to pray for me. He doesn't have to have a healing line. He doesn't have to talk to me. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be whole. Right? But there's a problem. There's a lot of people trying to get to Jesus that day. If only she had picked a day when he was off by himself somewhere in the wilderness. That would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it? But she picks a day when everybody is trying to get to him. When everybody is trying to take the same action as her 
everybody is thronging him, meaning everybody is trying to touch him. So what does she have to do? She has to push through this throng of people. And I don't know how big the multitude is, but it indicates that it's a lot of people. In her weakened condition, after having this issue of blood for 12 years, she has to push through this crowd to get close enough to touch his clothes. Why? What is she reaching for? She's reaching for life. The only reason she's coming to Jesus is because she's heard of a life that's different. She's heard of a life that's abundant when it comes to freedom from sickness and disease. Now, the Bible says Jesus said himself, as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now, don't get me wrong, because Jesus had the life in himself before he was ever anointed of the Holy Ghost. So it's the anointing of the Holy Ghost that takes place when John baptizes him in the Jordan River. It's the anointing of the Holy Ghost that gives him the authority and the power to minister healing to the sick. But prior to that, he still had the life of God in him, didn't he? Jesus had the life of God in him from the time that he was born as a baby. What did that life of God produce? Well, there must have been something unique about it. Because before Jesus ever performs his first miracle at the wedding in Cana, you remember the story? How that his mother comes to him and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. Apparently, this was a relative of her. She had something to do with the wedding party. So she says, Jesus, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Mine hour is not yet come. In other words, you don't dictate when I start doing my stuff. Yet, she turns around and says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Why would she do that? I tried to be a good son all my life, but I never had my mom tell anybody, whatever he says to do, you do that. You know? Why in the world would Mary say that? There's some indication, at least the implication, that Mary knows what he says has worth and value and works out. So she says to the servants, before Je- and remember, Jesus is not anointed by the Holy Ghost to do any miracles. He's never performed any miracles until then. Yet she says, without the knowledge of any miracle taking place in his life, without the knowledge of any power of God ever having transferred from him to someone else, having healed the sick or anything like that, no mighty work has ever been done. He has been baptized by John in the Jordan River up to this point in time, but he has not used it in any miracle working power. Yet she says to the servants, Whatever he says to you, you do it. The only thing Jesus had prior to that point in time that Mary was acquainted with was the life of God. So this life of God must have produced some kind of results for her to take that position with people that really had nothing to do with Jesus. Or maybe a better way to say it is in a situation that Jesus had nothing to do with, meaning the wedding feast. There's something about this life. Let me suggest it to you this way. When Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and shortly thereafter, after he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the Bible says he returned into the spirit unto Cana, or into, to Judea. He returned in the spirit of power. And there went unto fame of him throughout that region. 
He returned in power. The power was available. He hasn't yet used it. He didn't use it until first in Cana at the wedding feast. So his mother would have no way to know. I doubt if he came home and said, wow, mom, I'm full of power now. That's not the way he operated. So there was something about the life that he had experienced prior to then that caused her to take notice of something special about him. The power after he was anointed by the Holy Ghost helped him, enabled him, I should say, not helped him, enabled him to minister healing to the sick. But prior to that, he had never spent a sick day in his life. Why? Because of the life of God. So the woman with issue of blood has heard about a life. She's heard about a man who is doing miraculous works. And she pushes through. Here's the picture I want you to see of Mark chapter 5. She pushes through a mountain of flesh to get to the life of God. And it brings healing and blessing to her life. And folks, that's the same way it works with us. John G. Lake said this. He said, God's not looking for a man that's hot and cold. He's not looking for a man that's in one day and out the next day. He's looking for a man that's hot today, hotter the next day, and hotter still the rest of his life. He said, that's the man that will press through to the Jesus life and experience the glory of God. Smith Wigglesworth said this. He said, faith never sees a goiter. And then he tells this story. He told a story about a lady had this big growth on the side of her face. And he said he came to her, or she came to him in one of his meetings, and he laid hands on her. Very simply, commanded that thing to, to depart, leave her body. She threw up both hands and started thanking God for her healing. One month went by, and she began to testify. Every time she'd come to church, she'd testify, oh, it's so good to be healed. Two months go by, still testifying. All the way up to a year, a year later, she stands up in a testimony and gives her testimony in a church service and says, oh, a year ago, I had hands laid on me and I was healed of a goiter. Well, this thing has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger on the side of her face. Finally, her parents, after a year, her parents came to her after that night and said, people think you're crazy. We're not too sure either. Because can't you see that this thing has gotten bigger on your face? You need to go upstairs and look in the mirror and see that this thing has gotten bigger. Well, she left from where they were, went upstairs and looked in the mirror. But when she looked in the mirror, she didn't see the thing on her face. She said, looking at her face in the mirror, she said, Oh, Father God, show them what I see. Next morning, she woke up and that thing was completely gone. Now, when did she receive her healing? A year before. As far as some people were concerned, she received it that, that morning. When it was gone. But see, she was seeing something else. That's why Wigglesworth, he, when he heard that story and it was uh, reported to him, that's why he began to say, faith never sees a goiter. I like that. Faith never sees a goiter. What do you see? Do you see according to the life of God that you have within you? Or are you looking in the mirror at the size of the thing growing? You're looking at the, the growth of your problems. You're looking at the problems in your body or the problems in your finances. What do you see? The law of the spirit of life has made you free. 
It's not going to make you free. It's already done it. It's already set you free from the law of sin and death. So many people are waiting for God to do something on their behalf. And they've got the life of God in them all the time. How much more abundant does the life of God that caused you to be born again have to be for your situation to change? Or is it possible that we're like the woman with the issue of blood? We mean well, but we're sitting on the outside waiting for Jesus to press through the crowd to us. If that had been her position, if that had been her action, what do you think she would have gotten? Nobody else in the crowd got anything. You can't tell me that nobody else in the crowd was sick. If so, that would have been the first multitude that was well except for one person in Jesus' ministry. I have no doubt in my mind, I'm well satisfied that that crowd was full of sick people that had heard exactly the same things that the woman with the issue of blood had heard. But folks, there's a hearing of faith as opposed to just hearing words that gets results. When you hear what the Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Old things meaning spiritual things, the spiritual bondage of sick sin, sickness, and poverty. All things have become new, meaning you've been set free from sin, sickness, and poverty. How do you hear that? Are those just words? Like so many people here, like most Christians here, then they think, oh, I wish God would do something about my situation. When you hear the scripture that says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free, not going to, but has set me free from the law of sin and death. How do you hear that? Do you hear that with the ears of the flesh? Oh, what a wonderful promise. If only God would move. God has moved. He's made you a new species of being. That new species of being cannot be held down by sin or sickness or poverty. It's impossible. It can't be done. Oh, that we would pursue the life of God. Oh, that we would quit looking for God to do something on our behalf. This was, uh, uh, according to Wigglesworth's testimony, this was the secret to his power. He said, he wrote in his own journal, he wrote this. He said, I came to realize that when I laid aside my life and took up the Jesus life, there was no sin, there was no sickness, and there was no poverty that could stand in the way. And people would come to him with impossible situations. I mean impossible situations. And they'd say, Brother Wigglesworth, such and such is the situation. The doctors have given up on me. What do you think? Will God heal me? He would always answer, of course God will heal you. Only believe. That was his phrase. Only believe. Only believe. We look at it like, well, if you believe enough, if you're making the right confessions, if things are right in your life, if you got everything straight, if there's no hindrance, no unforgiveness, then yeah, under the right conditions, God will heal. Why would we do that? 
Because so few of us have faith in the Jesus life that lives in us. So few of us have faith in that Zoe life, that life of God that's already filled our spirits. How do you hear these things? Do you hear them with a natural ear? Or do you hear them with the ear of faith? Let's pray. Oh, Father, you've done so much for us. Your plan of redemption has been carried out perfectly by Jesus, the creator of the universe. Yet so many look for you to do something more instead of relying on the life of God that's within us. So many see the circumstance. They see the sickness. They see the report. And they fail to recognize that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that already indwells us has set us free already from the law of sin and death. Father, enlarge our hearts. Enlarge our spirits that we may see with the eye of faith and hear spiritual words with spiritual ears and walk in the newness of life. Now I'm going to lead you in a confession. I want you to say these words after me. Don't just repeat the words. Let your heart agree with them. Think about what you're saying. Say this after me. I've been born again. Therefore, I am a new species of being. I've been translated from spiritual death unto the life and the nature of God. There's a spiritual law that governs that life of God. That spiritual law dictates that because I'm in Christ, I am free from sin, sickness, and poverty. It's impossible for the life of God in me to be dominated by sin. It's impossible for the life of God in me to be dominated by sickness. And it's impossible for the life of God in me to be dominated by lack in any way. Thank you, Father, that I'm free from sickness because I live the Jesus life.
Now, the glory of God is in this room and started coming in when we began making our confession. The presence of God is here to help you to make good on that which you have said from your heart. What you confess may have contradicted everything in your circumstance, which means you spoke those words from your heart, your spirit. And he's here to make good on those things. So if you need help from the Lord, just reach up and take it. That's why he's here. Holy Spirit, you are our helper. Thank you, Father, that the Spirit of God is here to enforce that which we have spoken, to bring into being that which we have declared, to make good on the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we bless your name. Thank you that we were crucified with Christ. We died with him on the cross. And when he was raised in a newness of life, so were we. We are just as alive with the life of God as Jesus is at your right hand. We have the same authority over sin, sickness, and poverty that Jesus has because we have the same life. His life lives on in us. We cannot be defeated because of the life and the nature of God that indwells us. For greater is he that is in us than anything or anyone in this world. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Open our eyes to these truths, Lord. Holy Spirit, reveal to us who we are. Make us bigger than we are today. Make us bigger in spirit tomorrow than we are today. That we might do the works of the Lord. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Say it with me. Healing is mine. Because the life of God lives in me. You believe that? It's true. No matter what the doctor says, no matter what you see or feel in your body, what you just said was true. You know, I think it would do us good to look ourselves in the mirror every morning and say, I'm a new species of being. An alien here on this earth. 
I may look like regular flesh and blood. I may look like a regular human. But I've got the life and the nature of God in me. You start thinking like that and nothing the devil does can hold you back, can hinder you, and will certainly never overcome you. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Let's go live the Jesus life this week. What do you say? Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>